Hello, hello. So today we are continuing on with Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? How the Bible is Good News for People of Color by Antipas L. Harris. So as we move into part three, entitled A Faith That Cares from People A Faith That Cares, excuse me, about people from different cultures. We move into chapter 8, reading the New Testament through dark lenses. And there's a quote here. A biblical role of non-Europeans in general and blacks is particularly, in particular, has been trivialized and left in the margins, as has their role in salvation, history, subsequent to the redaction of the Bible by Cain Hope Felder. In an increasingly diverse world, we must read scripture for its affirmation of every human being, from the socially elite to dwellers in the world's slums, from the powerful to the distressed, from refugees to undocumented immigrants in pursuit of political asylum, from the most rooted to the illiterate, and even the hustlers on the corner. Every human being is invited to have a relationship with Jesus. Just as Europeans encountered a white Jesus, Latinos, Indian, people in Africa, and others must bring their social cultural locations to bear on biblical interpretation. This is what the incarnation is all about. God comes among us in God's Son, Jesus Christ, to take up residence in our social cultural locations. John 1 14. In Matthew 1 23, God says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. When we read scripture through the God with us lens, we encounter the incarnated Christ amid of all God's people to help heal and give hope. Crystal Valentine, an African-American poet, succinctly offers a contemporary interpretation of the incarnation in a passionate response to Megyn Kelly's disastrous claim that Jesus is white. In Valentine's piece entitled, And the News Reporter Says Jesus is White, she says in expressive words, How can she say Jesus was a white man when he died the blackest way possible, with his hands up, with his mother watching, crying at his feet? Her words conjure images of unarmed black men murdered in the streets with the crucifixion of Jesus. By highlighting the commonality of experience, she frames the blackness of Jesus. It's a different notion of blackness than those who claim that Jesus was of black heritage in attempt to find identity with him. Instead, she highlights what I'll call an experimental heritage. 
Christ's experience of suffering and humiliation at the hands of oppressive governmental powers allows the oppressed and suffering of this world to identity with him. In the American context, this is true for many people in the African-American community. Netflix commentator Killer Mike argues that we need a black messiah. When properly understood, Jesus is a black messiah. That is, Jesus is intimately present with black, white, brown, and all people's suffering. Christ's mission statement. Identity and representation are central concerns for the majority of people when it comes to embracing faith. In light of this reality, the image of Jesus is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed European that has come to dominate the public imagination as a great tragedy. It's tempting to dismiss such a development is merely a negligent historical inaccuracy, but doing so would ignore the fact that this image of Jesus is the result of Western European, Europeans remaking God in their own image. Ultimately, we must engage with the Jesus of Scripture, not his misrepresentations propagated through media and popular culture. Unfortunately, Few people have sought out this Jesus. Most have come to base their understanding of Jesus on second-hand information. As a result, the dominant culture in the West has maintained the authoritative voice on the appearance, character, and experience of Jesus, allowing him to be misrepresented and reduced to a mere icon. The radical nature of his life and teachings mostly ignored. With this misrepresentation in mind, many disillusioned black millennials ask, how can I identify with this Jesus? The quickest rebuttal is to ask, who does Jesus identify with? And seek the answer in scripture. The Gospel of Luke offers an answer that couldn't be any clearer. The narrative in 4, verses 18 through 19, presents Jesus right before he begins his ministry, marking his first public declaration. Picture a well-known figure or politician making an impromptu announcement that they are running for president. The only difference is that up until this point, Jesus was obscure and unknown. According to Luke, Jesus stands in the synagogue and declares, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. The Eastern Standard Version. This is a remarkable statement. In these verses, 
Jesus makes a public announcement that essentially doubles as a mission statement, one that lacks the characteristics of white Jesus as he's been popularized by dominant culture. Hence, we must ask ourselves, who is Jesus referencing? The poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed? Based on that observation, if we believe that the good news of Jesus is relevant for today's generation, we must ask, who are the poor and oppressed of our age? With such a lens, we quickly see that the radical and liberative essence of Christ is closer to the experience of black America than many have been misled to believe. Undoubtedly, Christ's mission is a message of liberation. Liberation from bondage with all its ramifications within the human experience. Christ's bold confrontation of the oppressive realities plaguing humanity is a divine call to attention. To embrace Christ is to commit to his mission, which means that the oppressed see Christ intentionally, pursuing them in their experience and the privileged embrace Christ among the oppressed. If Christ himself identifies in a special way with the oppressed, then to identify with Christ is to identify with the oppressed as well. Through this framework, we see more clearly that the whitewashing of Jesus and Christianity distorts his very essence. It has made Christ inaccessible to the very people that he prioritized. When we acknowledge the full extent of Christ's mission in the world, we recognize that any expression of Christianity that ignores or justifies the sorrowful conditions of the poor and disenfranchised is one that has lost its meaning. Yet the whitewashing of Jesus is only the tip of the iceberg. Beneath such imaginary lies an interpretation of the Bible that centers the powerful and sidelines the oppressed. Jesus has been broadly removed from the culture of this day and replaced with a lens focused on Western culture and its white majority. To renounce the white man's religion then requires one to engage Jesus and read the New Testament with a different perspective, a view focused on the lives of the burdened, weak, and wearied. Christianity will not have any meaning or impact on the, in the United States of America apart from doing so. The blackness of Jesus from Valentine's poem connects to a long heritage of black spirituality in this, on this continent. Enslaved Americans, Africans, suffering under the brutality of the South found hope in Christ, not because he was forced on them, but because they found familiarity in him, a faith that confronted and emboldened enslaved and enslaved people is the faith that we must rediscover. James Kahn expresses this reality most clearly when he states, 
until we can see the cross and the lynching tree together, until we can identify Christ with a re-crucified black body hanging from a lynching tree, there can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America and no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy. The task before us is to learn how to discover Jesus afresh by reading the New Testament with a darker lens. Seeing Christ in Color In the West, spirituality is generally thought of as a private and internal affair. Many have been indoctrinated to believe the Christian faith is only for the salvation of our souls and As a result, we only engage Jesus in light of what he did on the cross for our benefit. Most churches talk about Christ's death and resurrection with his ministry relegated to the background. There is much more to Jesus' life and ministry. Without a doubt, Christ's death and resurrection are the central tenets of Christianity. However, if his death and resurrection are separated from his teaching and historical hysterical content, their meaning becomes distorted. Jesus' ministry cannot be overlooked if we are to engage the fullness of his revelation in the scriptures. His ministry provides deep insight into the way in which God has chosen to redeem and restore humanity. The first important detail in reading the New Testament is that God chose to be human. He took on flesh, became a man, and walked among us. This is a scandalous idea among the history of religious ideas. The incarnation is important for the oppressed because everyone has a body. The rich possess wealth. The academic have intellect, but they cannot escape the fact of their mortal bodies. In these bodies, we feel pain, experience hunger and thirst, and ultimately face death. Jax Ulel explains the significance of this fact in this way. God descends to humanity and joins us where we are. This is the opposite of the religious movement in which people would like to ascend to where God is. Hence, we see a radical contradiction between all religions and the fundamental path of revelation. Far too often, we think of the goal of the Christian gospel as pulling us away from the human experience into the spiritual realm. But the incarnation of Christ points to something quite the opposite. The Son of God saw fit to become human, an act divinely affirming our humanity. As humans made in the image of God, we see Jesus Christ embrace our physical form. We don't worship God as an abstract idea, but by means of a Savior, a King, who exist in a human body forevermore. Hence, any ideology that seeks to devalue 
or subjugate the human body is an upfront on God. The dehumanization of the black body is an insult to Christ himself who took on human flesh in order to redeem humanity, including our bodies. Slaveholder Christianity emphasizes the souls of select human beings but neglects their bodily oppression. Such a such a conception of Christianity is foreign to the New Testament, yet it continues to linger in today's Christian landscape. Many argue that oppression and, and injustice are inconsequential because God is more concerned with the souls of men. Martin Luther King Jr. highlighted this misguided spirituality when he wrote, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely other worldly religion, which made a strange distinction between body and soul the sacred and the secular. From Dr. King, the insistence on creating a doctomony became, between body and soul seemed aloof and not Christian. The humility, excuse me, the humility of Jesus. We are filled with illusions about what God looks like. Once I received a call from a block number Thinking it was my mentor, I eagerly answered, only to discover it was someone else asking, why do people put this 400-year-old picture of God up to their churches and houses? Taken aback by the question, I probed to understand what the person was really asking. Soon, it became clear that they were confused about Michelangelo's depiction mm -hmm of a white Jesus Christ made popular in many Western Christian circles of, for centuries. I explained to the anonymous caller that the picture was an artist's imagination at work and not an original depiction of Jesus. While I cannot get into Michelangelo's head to know exactly what he was thinking, it is safe to say that the picture of Jesus that he painted was a reflection of both his view of high reverence and personal relatability. The caller wanted me to confirm that Jesus is also relatable to contemporary situations and the plight of the urban communities. I explained to the man that the actual image of Jesus is not known today. There is no original photograph, but a first century carpenter's stepson who was born in a stinking stable with an animal's food trough as his crib was probably not a very lofty picture. The cute nativity scenes we set up at Christmas time 
romanticize a shocking reality. The Savior came to the world in a non-illicit manner. In other words, God revealed God's self in the humblest way. The King of Kings bypassed the grand door of palaces to make his entrance into the world surrounded by animals. This should speak powerfully to uncelebrated and rejected people, those made to feel insignificant and unworldly. The Christian story reveals that God delights in dignifying the humble with his presence and humbling the proud and mighty. This should give us new perspective on the ghettos, inner cities, and struggling communities. These are all places near to God's heart. It may surprise you that these undesirable places and situations are also rich with divine revelation. Jesus' background reveals something insightful for the black experience. Nazareth was a city of Galilee and the place of Jesus' upbringing. His background came burdened with prejudice. The Gospel of John records that Jesus received derision and scorn from those who learned of his hometown. Nathaniel, a would-be disciple, remarks, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The book of John, chapter 1, verse 46. Supposedly, this was a common phrase of the day, as Nazareth was a small village of low reputation. Discrimination and racial prejudice continued to hinder the flourishing of black people in America. Many black people are ashamed of their backgrounds, the black experience, and their culture. Research reveals that prospective employers are 36% less likely to call back candidates whose resumes feature African American names than those who culturally, with culturally white European names. Black people in America face the same query every day. Can anything good come out of Tanisha or Daquan? Black millennials are carrying the impact of deeply segregated communities and school systems. Black communities face severe symptomatic neglect and abuse. Many schools in urban black communities are under-resourced leaving kids uninterested in education and with little vision for the future. Can anything good come out of the hood is a question black youth have wrestled with throughout their experiences. Jesus empathizes with it. He walked the same road. Humble beginnings are not a thing of shame to God and we must emphasize this reality for the black millennials searching for affirmation and significance. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That was from the ESV. What Paul describes above should resonate deeply with black lives. We then must embrace the realities of weakness and disenfranchisement not as experiences worthy of shame, but the very ground that nurtures the seed of God's power and wisdom into a transforming force. Diversity in the Gospels. It is impossible to understand the biblical narrative without paying attention to the role that ethnic diversity plays. No one is truly colorblind, claiming to be denies the beauty of a diverse humanity. It invades the value that color brings to the human experience. It preserves prejudice when we pretend not to see what is obviously there. And it overlooks historical baggage that has shaped the social experience. In the ancient world, ethnicity was a defining marker of social status. It was a social determinant for clean and unclean along the many other social stigmas. We see this clearly in one of the more popular parables of Jesus known as the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. The phrase Good Samaritan has become synonymous with a person who is kind and generous to the needy. However, the audience listening to Jesus' parable at the time despised the Samaritans as an ethnic group. Jesus tells this parable in response to a lawyer who posed the question, Who is my neighbor? With the parable, Jesus uses a Samaritan man, a person regarded as an outcast, untrustworthy, and ethnically impure, to teach a lesson about neighborlessness, neighborliness, neighborliness. In doing so, he highlights not only what hospitality should look like, but also how God identifies with society's rejects. Another example that displays ethnicity is a social status. As a social status, excuse me, is the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John 4. When she approaches, Jesus asks her for a drink of water, to, to which she responds, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John 4 and 9. Jesus pays no heed to the ethnic segregation of his day because a central part of his mission was to embrace the outcast and the oppressed. To the Samaritan woman's surprise, Jesus demonstrates God's intolerance of both historic factions between people, groups, and gender oppression. Long before civil rights protesters sought to drink from whites-only fountains, Jesus led by reaching across the segregated lines to request a drink from a Samaritan woman. 
Jesus is our model of resistance to all forms of bigotry and racial hierarchy. Black spirituality must pattern itself after the example of our Lord and Savior. Seeing truth, repentance in the Gospels. I once heard a preacher in a mostly white congregation say, We're all equal at the foot of Jesus. There is no black or white, rich or poor. Jesus embraces us all. Such sentiments are often met by loud, resounding amens, as many are glad to be received by God just as they are. No ifs or buts. And this is true. Jesus is no respecter of person. We all enter into God's kingdom through the same pathway of repentance, receiving freedom from the power of sin and submitting to Christ's rule over our lives. However, this is the view from several thousand feet in the air. On the ground, the application of these same steps looks unique for each person and context because the mis the magnification of sin in our lives and societies don't all look the same. Repenting of personal sins looks different from person to person. While rebuking complacent crowds, John the Baptist demands that they bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This, to this the crowd responds, what then shall we do? What John says next is, I believe, a shock to the system of Western Christianity. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. To the tax collectors who were often corrupt, he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. To the soldiers who inquired what repentance looked like for them, he said, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. Luke 3 and 7 through 14. Repentance is not merely abstract or metaphysical. It manifests itself in the particulars of our lives. It looks to address and correct previous wrongdoing, particularly in the ways we have refused to care for others out of our abundance and in the many ways we have used our power to oppress the vulnerable. For Christians in the American context, this has huge implications for race relations. A colorblind ideology commented to ignoring the injustices and inequities created by race is an attempt to avoid the cost of repentance. Is there any wonder why we fail to bear the right fruit? Reading the New Testament rightly leads us to recognize that redemption in Christ is not a historical amnesia. Our ethic Ethnic, cultural, and racial identities do not get erased. The suffering of Jesus. The cross is a global symbol of the Christian faith. In ancient Rome, 
The cross was the means of carrying out the death penalty. The Roman Empire used this brutal tactic to enforce its authority and silence opposition. By executing criminals in a public crucifixion and leaving their dead bodies hanging for days, their death became spectacle to antagonize the community and elicit fear. This was how Jesus died. In post-slavery America, more than 4,000 lynchings of African Americans occurred between 1877 and 1950. Throughout the South, racial terror chased after blacks who attempted to subvert the oppressive Jim Crow laws or pursue lives of dignity and freedom. After Reconstruction, efforts were successfully hindered. White-black relationships took a violently antagonistic turn. Black bodies were no longer prized possessions in need of protection. They had become an economic commodity. As a result, they were seen as inconvenient at best and disposable at worst. This led to a wave of lynchings, racial terror, and riots. Black men, women, and children were brutally, ap- brutally apprehended, beaten, and strung up in front of teeming mobs, teeming mobs watching with murderous fervor. The collective history of Black America bears cultural memory of the trauma. In The Cross and the Lynching Tree, the late theologian James H. Cone points out that a significant part of the Black Christian tradition is the embodiment of common ground with the suffering Jesus. He too was offered up to be killed by a teeming mob and a complacent and corrupt government. For black folks, when we mourn and grieve the wickedness of human beings and unjust power, we don't grieve in isolation. Our Savior has gone this way before us. He grieved in the very same way about the very same experiences. We find in Jesus an empathetic and compassionate Savior. We don't have to explain our pain and sorrow. We don't need to justify the reality of our generational trauma. He knows intuitively because he also experienced the full depravity of sin expressed through a violent mob demanding death. The cross of Christ is not merely symbolic of abstract theologies and orthodox propositions. It is a divine expression of solidarity with suffering people and supernatural victory that brings hope in the middle of human suffering. I once heard black theologian Willie Jennings capture this connection by saying, Why did enslaved Africans become Christian? Despised flesh was drawn to the despised flesh of Christ. A Christianity that meddles in cheap grace and is full of cliches is off-putting 
for people who suffer under the duress of structural evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. A Christianity that fails to boldly engage the experience of suffering people falls in the category of cheap grace. It overlooks human pain in pursuit of a savior who is able to heal pain. The Holy Spirit empowers believers to be Christ's presence in a suffering world. Stated another way, Christians are Jesus' concrete presence that transcends place and time to advance God's mission of love. Moreover, Christians must lament over injustice and suffering. Psalms 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The nearness of God to those crushed in spirit is most evident in our Lord Jesus Christ himself. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this when he writes, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, lets us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4. 14 through 15. Hebrews presents our Lord as one who bears with us in our suffering because he chose to join us in it. This Jesus is the one from whom black spirituality can draw deep meaning in order to find sustaining hope. And as we close, living it out. Reading the Bible through the colors of culture changes the way diverse people understand God, the world, and themselves. The Bible and the Christian message have have journeyed a long way to meet us in 21st century America. Along the way, they have been redefined and repurposed by a wide range of doctrines and interpretations. Many of these have been helpful, but some have been outright destructive. One of these destructive outcomes is that the good news of Jesus no longer sounds like good news to the very people near to his heart. However, because the world has no black, no lack of people yearning for liberation, there are always people whose social reality should provoke with us a desire to revisit the scriptures. Through their eyes, it is possible to correct our way of thinking. This means, however, 
that we must take the lives and experiences of the least of these as seriously as Jesus did. Jesus was always concerned about the sick, overlooked, marginalized, and socially oppressed people. In America, the least of these category lands squarely on its oppressed minorities. Hence, the black perspective is pivotal for the development of a healthy Christian spirituality that practices the way of Christ. The stones that the builder rejected must become the cornerstone.